Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Muttaki Ismail. This is a bonus episode filling in the space between season 7 and season 8. And this episode is brought to you by Islamic History Exclusive. Islamic History Exclusive is our premium podcast series. We have four seasons so far discussing various topics, starting with the struggle between Ibn Zubair and the Umayyads. We also have a, a series on the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi. And then we have two seasons, two ongoing seasons about the Umayyad Caliphate. In fact, the most recent episode from the Umayyad Caliphate, from the second season of the Umayyad Caliphate, discusses the beginning of the Umayyad conquest of Spain. That is Al-Andalus, that is the Iberian Peninsula. And in fact, because this, this event, the Muslim conquest of Spain, is so important in the context of Islamic history, I've decided to make this episode free for everyone. So if you go look for Islamic History Exclusive on your Apple Podcast app or on your Spotify app, or if you don't have either one of those, you can go to patreon.com slash Islamic History. Look for the episode called Al-Andalus. You can download and listen to it for free. Now, after listening to that episode, if you are convinced that Islamic History Exclusive is something you want more of, if you need more Islamic History, join Islamic History Exclusive. And you can hear everything that I just mentioned, including the context surrounding the Umayyad conquest of Al-Andalus. Simply go to Apple Podcasts or to Spotify or patreon.com slash Islamic History or to my personal website, islamichistoryexclusive.com. And one last thing before we get into the show, just want to remind you that this episode is also brought to you by the Prophet Muhammad podcast. This is a free podcast done by yours truly, chronicling the life of the last messenger of Allah, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, Prophet Muhammad Ibn Abdullah, this podcast is available on all platforms. I encourage you, it is free. Go check it out if you have the time and inclination to do so. All right, so let's get into this episode. This is the first episode of a short series that I plan to do on the Sokoto Caliphate. Of course, you would probably have the question, what was the Sokoto Caliphate? Well, the Sokoto Caliphate was one of the largest and one of the most influential sub-Saharan Islamic African empires. The Sokoto Caliphate was based in what is now northern Nigeria in a region known as Hausaland. We will discuss Hausaland a little bit more in just a few moments. The Sokoto Caliphate was founded by a famous Islamic scholar and warrior named Shehu Uthman Dan Fodio. If you would like to know more about Uthman Dan Fodio, or if you would like to read some of his works, I encourage you to go visit a website called siasi.org. S-I-I-A-S-I dot org. Go to the digital archive and look for Sheikh Uthman Ibn Fodio. But go visit that website and you will see several manuscripts, essays, writings by the Sheikh and many other Muslim African scholars as well 
You will see translations for his works. You can download them, read them. It is all completely free. The brother who put this together, may Allah reward him. He has put so much work into this. It is just amazing. I encourage you, go check it out. Now back to the Sokoto Caliphate. The Sokoto Caliphate lasted for just a little over a century. While it existed, the Sokoto Caliphate dominated trade and politics in this very strategic region in Africa. It was in a region where North Africa, East Africa, West Africa, and Central Africa all came together. The Sokoto Caliphate managed to resist European colonization for a fairly long time, but it was eventually subjugated by the British in 1903. Despite this, the position of the Sultan, the Sokoto Sultan, still exists today, and it is still based in northern Nigeria. However, the Sokoto Sultan only has religious authority today. Now, we really can't talk about the Sokoto Caliphate without discussing some of the other empires that existed during the same time, because the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate coincided with the decay and the downfall of some of these other empires. Most important of these empires was the Kanem Borno Empire. Let's go through a brief history of the Kanem Borno Empire because we have to discuss this empire before we discuss the Sokoto Caliphate. There are many factors that led to the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate, but one of the most important factors was the steady and slow downfall of Kanem Borno. Kanem Borno originated somewhere between the region of Lake Chad and Kanem, which is also in modern Chad. You might need a map or a globe or Google Earth or something to keep track of these places, but just trust me, Kanem-Borno began around the region of Lake Chad. Now, Kanem-Borno is actually a combination of two separate kingdoms, the kingdom of Kanem and the kingdom of Borno. Now, most of the people living in these two kingdoms were pastoralists or people who tended to sheep, goats, and cattle. Also, these two kingdoms were very diverse, and even though most of the people were pastoralists, everybody was not, and many people were highly skilled in ironworking. And it had a very strong equestrian culture. There were many people who were great horsemen. By the 11th century, both of these kingdoms, both of these separate kingdoms, Kanem and Borno, had accepted Islam. Kanem became Muslim pretty early on, around the year 1075. Somewhere between 1075 and 1080, Muslim elements, Muslim members of the Kanem royal court helped to change the kingdom into an Islamic kingdom. This movement was led by a man named Hum. Hum, H-U-M-E, he doesn't really play too much of a role in our overall story, but it's still interesting to know. Hum, who started, okay, let me tell you that again. The man named Hum, H-U-M-E, who started this change over to Islam and the Kanem kingdom, he began the ruling family of the Kanem kingdom, the Sefuwa dynasty. And this dynasty would rule Kanem and then also Kanem Borno until it was dissolved in the 1800s. 
Now, most of the rulers of Canaan, before it became Canaan Borno, most of the rulers of Canaan were generally devoted Muslims, and they were committed, at least in principle, and they were committed in ruling the kingdom of Canaan by the Sharia. However, as a Muslim empire based on Sharia, it felt it had a duty to wage war on its non-Muslim neighbors, and it began to do that. That is how Kanem grew, slowly by absorbing and conquering the non-Muslim states in its region. Somewhere around 1400 CE, these two kingdoms, Kanem and Borno, merged into one state. And this merger created a new ethnic group called Kanembu. Now, the kings or the rulers of Kanamborno were called Mai, M-A-I. In the 15th century, the Mai of Kanamborno, the king of Kanamborno, basically, the sultan of Kanamborno, it is very likely that the Mai, the ruler of Kanamborno, took on this title of caliph even before the Ottoman sultans began calling themselves caliph. Now, one can make an argument that it would have been more appropriate for the Mai of Kanamborno to call themselves Sultan rather than Caliph, but that's outside the scope of this episode. My own personal opinion, in order for someone to be considered the Caliph, they have to control Mecca and Medina. That's just me personally. You don't have to accept my opinion. It is absolutely just my opinion. But I find it very difficult for anyone to call themselves a true caliph of the Muslim world unless they controlled Mecca and Medina. Now, chances are the Mai of Kanamborno and later on the Sokoto Caliphate, the rulers of the, of the Sokoto Caliphate, did not really see themselves as rivals with the Ottoman Empire when they started calling themselves caliph. And I've seen other instances in other parts of the world, mostly in Africa, where the spiritual leader still takes on the, t- the title of caliph. One example, when I was in Senegal, which is in West Africa, the dominant Sufi order there is called the Morid, or Moridullahi. And the leader, the spiritual leader of the Morid, calls himself the caliph. And he has the label, he has the title of caliph. He's the caliph of that Sufi order. Now, I'm not saying what is right or wrong. I'm just giving you the facts. I encourage you to do your own research and come to your own opinions, and Allah knows best. All right, back to Kanamborno. As Kanamborno grew, it slowly became a major trading center. Just like the Sokoto Caliphate, which came after it, Kanamborno occupied a very strategic position between the Sahara Desert to the north, the kingdoms of West Africa, and the kingdoms and states of East Africa. Kanum Borno grew so big that it ultimately covered parts of modern Libya, Niger, Nigeria, Chad, and Cameroon. Kanum Borno established connections and had diplomatic ties with the Ottoman Empire. And with this growth, and of course, as we mentioned, Kanum Borno grew at the expense of its non-Muslim neighbors in the region, with its growth came an influx of slaves into Kanamborno, and the slave trade became a major part of its economy. Now, I understand this may be a controversial issue for some. 
Some people seem to think of this as Africans enslaving their brothers and Africans enslaving each other. While that is definitely true, that is what happened, you have to understand that these were often different ethnic groups. Just like the French and the Germans fought each other and killed each other by the millions in World War I and World War II, these groups fighting in Africa were often different ethnic groups. They did not see each other as one big African family. Just like we have to respect and we understand the ethnic differences amongst the Europeans, we should also respect and understand that there are ethnic differences in Africa as well. Understand, there are thousands of different ethnic groups in Africa. There is not even a clear number of how many different ethnic groups there are in Africa. Speaking of ethnic groups, there were several African ethnic groups that resisted Kanem-Borno's expansion, and many of them were Muslim. There were the Tuareg, the Hausa, the Tubu, the Bulala. These are all Muslim groups in the region who did not want to become part of Kanem-Borno. And they resisted Kanem-Borno, they fought back against Kanem-Borno, and over time, they eventually began chipping away at Kanem-Borno's eastern holdings, particularly in what is now Chad. Kanem-Borno was further weakened and further decimated by the expansion of another African Islamic empire called the Wadai Empire. The Wadai Empire was based in Chad and began extending east into what is now Sudan, but it also began expanding west into Kanem-Borno territory, and this led to the steady decay of the Kanem-Borno. So by the late 1700s, the Kanem-Borno Empire was slowly decaying. Its military was weak. Many of its former vassals and its former holdings began to rebel against Kanem-Borno. There was one called Mandara. The Mandara was a vassal state of Kanem-Borno and they rebelled against Kanem-Borno. Mandara was assisted by the Fulani and the Shiwa Arabs and we'll talk about both of those groups in a moment. In 1771, there was a big battle between Mandara and Kanem-Borno. Kanem-Borno was led by their king named Mai Ali. Remember, Mai was the title for the king of Kanem-Borno, the ruler of Kanem-Borno. Mai Ali led his army to fight the Mandara and they were completely defeated and the king was killed. Kanem-Borno lost even more territory when the Tuaregs, the Tuaregs are an African slash Berber group based primarily in the Sahara, somewhere between sub-Saharan Africa and North Africa. The Tuaregs defeated Kanem-Borno also in 1800 and destroyed a buffer state that Kanem-Borno had established called Gaskeru. Several other former states and vassals and holdings within Kanem-Borno rebelled. Some of them invaded other parts of the empire. The Tuaregs continued to chip away at the north, culminating with the Tuaregs capturing the Bilma salt mines from Kanem-Borno. These salt mines were a major part of its economy. They were based in Niger. Kanem-Borno lost it to the Tuaregs. And with that loss, Kanem-Borno also lost its trade routes going across the Sahara Desert into North Africa. 
Now, all of this chaos caused problems within the different groups living within Kanamborno. The chaos disturbed and caused instability within the various populations within the empire, in particular, the Shiwa Arabs and the Kanembu. As we mentioned, the Kanembu were the ethnic group that was created by the merging of Kanem and Boro kingdoms. The Shiwa Arabs, however, are different. Shiwa Arabs are a, an ethnic group that is mixed with both African and Arab. If you look at them, you would almost certainly consider them to be of African descent. However, they speak an Arabic dialect. Their language is an Arabic dialect. They are found mostly in Chad and Nigeria, and they have another name called Bagara. And Bagara comes from the Arabic word Bakara, which means, of course, cow, because the Shua Arabs are generally pastoralists, generally shepherds or cow herds, or they deal with flocks of sheep and cattle, things like that. Now, both of these groups, the Shua Arabs and the Kanembu, they were, as we mentioned earlier, pastoral groups. Their livelihood depended on their flocks of sheep and cattle. With all of this disruption going on in the Kanem-Borno Empire, these groups were forced to move south of Lake Chad with their flocks. But when they moved south, they caused friction with the locals living in that region. And most of these locals who already lived south of Lake Chad, most of them were farmers. So you have the Shiwa Arabs and the Kanembu who were basically shepherds. They cared for large herds of sheep or cattle, moving them from one feeding area or one oasis to another. And now they bring these animals who can consume a lot of food at once into this farmland. And these people who are stationary farmers, naturally, there's going to be problems. Somebody brings their flock of sheep through another man's farm. You can imagine the kind of friction that that would cause. In addition to the, the pastoralists, the shepherds, and the cowherds bringing their animals south, there were other groups who were forced to leave their homes in the north because of all the chaos with the Tuaregs and the, the Wadai Empire and all the expansion going on in the north. Many people had to leave their homes in the north and move to the larger cities in Borno. So some people were shepherds and moved their flocks south. Others just moved to escape the chaos and just moved to larger cities in Borno, which is now in modern-day Nigeria. All of this disruption, all of this chaos, all of this instability led to the people of this region to distrust, dislike, and hate their government and help to foment revolt and rebellion. One of the groups in particular who were really revving up to revolt against the government were the Fulani. Many of the Fulani had been at odds with the Borno, the Kanem Borno government, and also, as we will soon see, many of the Fulani supported Uthman Danfodio, who, by the way, was a Fulani himself. Now, who were the Fulani people? The Fulani, they're also sometimes called Pul or Fulbe. The Fulani are one of the most widely dispersed groups in Africa. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, I was in Africa at one point in time, in West Africa. I'm not from West Africa. I am from Brooklyn, New York. However, as a young man, 
as a teenager, really, my mother decided to send me to West Africa to study Islam, and I went to Senegal. When I was in Africa, I definitely saw many Fulani or Pool people in that region. Senegal is all the way in West Africa, right on the Atlantic Ocean. So the Fulani, they occupy regions going from Senegal all the way in the west to Chad all the way in the east, which is really in Central Africa. But that's a huge expanse of territory for them to cover. The Fulani have traditionally been a pastoral people. And in fact, when I was in Senegal, most of the Fulani that I seen in Senegal were selling milk or they were herding their own gigantic flocks of sheep. The Fulani were mostly Muslim by the 14th century. In fact, the Fulani have created several Muslim states. There's one called Futa Jalon, which is located in the modern state of Guinea and Futo Toro, which is located in the modern state of Senegal, in between Senegal and uh, Mauritania. This phenomenon of the Fulani establishing these Muslim states throughout Africa became known as the Fulani Jihads. Now, this could be Westerners doing their Western thing, but nonetheless, the Fulani were responsible for establishing several Muslim states throughout Africa. The Sokoto Caliphate was perhaps the most significant Fulani Islamic state established in 1804 by Uthman Danfodio. Once again, though, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Many of the Fulani in this part of Africa that we're discussing, Chad and Nigeria and Niger, many of them lived in a region called Hausaland. Hausaland is a region in northern Nigeria. Back during this period of time, the 18th and early 19th century, Hausaland was a group of city-states in northern Nigeria running roughly along the Niger River onto Lake Chad. Now, many of these regions that the Niger River ran through in northern Nigeria had not become Muslim yet, and many of the people in these regions still practice what are known as traditional African religions. That's going to play a role in just a moment. But before we get to that part, there were two Hausa city-states that rose to prominence before the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate. They pretty much led to the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate. One of them was called Zamfara. Zamfara was located in what is now northwest Nigeria. The other one was called Gobir. Gobir was another Hausa city-state and also located in northwest Nigeria. Gobir, the second city-state, wound up capturing Zamfara in 1762. But that wasn't enough for Gobir. Throughout the rest of the century, Gobir continued to expand or try to expand, and it did so by fighting and conquering its neighbors. All of this constant internal fighting within Hausaland further destabilized the region. Again, we already had the instability from the Kanemborno Empire falling apart as well as the displaced populaces and displaced populations that had to flee from the instability caused by the decay of Kanan-Borno. Now you had these city-states in Hausaland fighting each other, further destabilizing the region. So with all of this fighting, it led to less trade, more autocratic and strict rulers, and more taxes. In order to fight, you got to have an army. To have an army, you got to pay them. You're going to pay them, Got to raise taxes. In addition to these burdensome taxes and uh, overall general downgrade of the economy, 
In Gobir in particular, the peasants were often forcefully conscripted into its military. So obviously, the people were not happy. If there was any bright side to this period of time, it is that it led to the growth of Islam amongst the peasants. As we mentioned, initially, this area was not predominantly Muslim. But as these city-states, these houses, city-states began fighting each other, and as instability increased in the region, Islam began to grow more. Either the peasants who were living under these brutal regimes, either they accepted Islam, or if they were already Muslim, they grew more religious and more pious. Islam became a very important factor in their lives. And they, these peasants were, these maybe peasants isn't the right word, but these common people, these common people, common folks, they were more willing to express their Islam, more willing to express and show their devotion to Islam. With this, several cities, amidst all of this instability and chaos, many of these cities became centers of Islamic learning. And these centers of Islamic learning attracted scholars. And it also led to the rise of homegrown scholars. And so you have Muslim scholars coming from outside the region, Muslim scholars coming from within the region. And so they start circulating throughout these different centers of Islamic learning, spreading knowledge, attracting followers. This is a common phenomenon in Islamic history. Muslim scholars traveling from place to place to place, spreading the religion, teaching people, holding audiences, and yes, attracting followers. And many people may try to denigrate or maybe cynical about Muslim scholars who have large following, but how else do you make dawah? How else do you give dawah without attracting, without having some sort of charisma to bring people to you? I don't know. That's the way Islam grew. That's the way also how Islam grew in this part of Africa. So not only was Islam growing, knowledge of Islam was growing. And as the knowledge of Islam grew, the people became less tolerant of their oppressive governments. They began to become more outspoken, more critical against their governments. They were especially critical of the judges, the corrupt judges who ruled over them, and the government officials as well. All of this is happening in Hausaland. And all of this was going on when Uthman Danfodio came on the scene. So now we're going to talk a little bit about the rise of Uthman Danfodio. Uthman Danfodio was born in 1754 in Maratha in Hausaland in what is now northern Nigeria. He was Fulani. His family originated from one of those Muslim states we mentioned earlier, Futa Toro, which was located in northern Senegal, Uthman Danfodio's parents were both Islamic scholars. He learned Quran from his father. He also studied with his mother. He also studied with other scholars, both within his family and outside, as he grew in Islam. He belonged to the Maliki Madhab. He followed the Maliki Madhab, or Maliki School of Thought. And he was also part of the Qadariya Sufi order. One of the scholars that... Uthman Danfodio studied under was named Jibril ibn Omar. Jibril ibn Omar was a highly respected and very influential Islamic scholar at this time and in this region of Africa. He taught that Muslims had a responsibility to establish a just society based on Islamic principles. And he was very critical of Muslims as 
especially Muslim leaders who blended Islam with the indigenous religious practices existing at that time in Africa. And Jibril ibn Omar also advocated for using jihad in order to establish this just society. Now back to Uthman Danfodio. By the age of 20, roughly 1774, Uthman Danfodio had become an itinerant teacher himself. As we mentioned, this region of Africa, mostly in northern Nigeria, had led to many different centers of learning, and Muslim scholars traveled between them, teaching people and holding audiences and giving lectures and all that sort of thing. Well, Uthman Danfodio began to do the same thing. He traveled across Hausaland and across northern Nigeria, holding audiences mostly filled with Muslim peasants, these Muslims who were not part of the nobility, who were not high class, just regular people, but they were Muslim and they wanted to know more about their faith. As Uthman Danfodio's popularity and as his following grew, he soon moved on to teaching the upper class and the nobility. And over time, he earned the title of Shehu, which means teacher. I haven't confirmed this, but I believe it probably comes from the Arabic word for Sheikh. But he is widely known as Shehu Uthman Danfodio. So I'm going to read a brief excerpt from one of Uthman Danfodio's essays. This one is called Ihya al-Sunnah wa Ihmad al-Bid'ah. And this means the revival of the Sunnah and destruction of innovation. The text generally discusses the various Sunnah of different acts of worship and the various innovations or bid'ah that have creeped into the different forms of worship in Islam. So let's read this quick excerpt. As for what the people have invented in the affairs of the mosque are the following. Among these innovations is having many mosques in one area. This is a reprehensible innovation, bid'ah mahruha, by consensus. It says in the Al-Madhal, it is narrated, that among the signs of the hour will be an increase in mosques and few people praying in them. Imam Abu Talib al-Maki, may Allah Ta'ala be merciful to him, says in his book, having many mosques in one place used to be reprehensible. It is related that Anas ibn Malik, may Allah be merciful to him, entered the city of Basra and every two steps he took he saw a mosque. He then said, What is this innovation? I bear witness that there used to be one mosque for the whole tribe, and the people of this tribe used to frequent a single mosque in an area of town. It says in the Al-Madhal, there is a difference of opinion concerning which one of them to pray in. If you find two mosques situated in one area... Some of the scholars say the prayer should be done in the oldest one. Anas ibn Malik, may Allah be merciful to him, and others from among the companions, may Allah be pleased with them, followed this opinion. Imam Malik said, the people of Medina used to pass by the new mosque to go to the older mosques. In the commentary of the Al-Aqidah, it mentions, Sahnun said, it is all right to have a second mosque in a village which has many people and buildings among them. However, if the people are few and it is feared that the first mosque will become unused, then they should prevent the second being built. This is because it will cause obvious harm. Ibn Rushd said, If the second mosque transcends the congregation of the first and it is established that the objective of building it was to cause disadvantage, it should be demolished and left as a place for garbage. 
If that has not been established, then it is to be left alone as long as there is no need for it because of many people. Again, if you want to read this manuscript in its entirety, including the introduction and commentary from the translator, go to the link I mentioned earlier. It will be in the show notes, siasi.org. All right, back to the main story. Over time, Othman Danfolio grew in popularity and he eventually gained an audience with the Sultan of Gobir. He met with the Sultan, talked with him, and convinced the ruler, convinced the Sultan of Gobir to give up his un-Islamic practices. As we mentioned, many of the Muslim rulers of this time blended Islam with traditional African religious practices. The ruler agreed to do so, the sultan agreed to do so, and he became very friendly with Uthman Danfolio. He became close with Uthman Danfolio, thereby giving Shahu Uthman Danfolio significant freedom to preach and teach as he desired within the state of Gobir. This worked out well for both parties. Over time, Uthman Danfolio's teachings started to get more political. In 1788, the same sultan who had met with Uthman Danfolio invited the Shehu and many other Muslim scholars in the region to come to his palace to celebrate Idul Adha. Well, after the Eid prayer, gifts were presented to all of the scholars. Uthman Danfolio turned his gift down. He refused to accept it. Instead, he asked for the following things from the sultan. He asked for complete freedom to preach throughout the land without any hindrances from the government. He also requested that anyone wearing a turban or hijab was to be treated with extra respect. He also requested that all political prisoners should be freed. And then he also asked that all taxes that were not part of the Quran and the Sunnah to be abolished. The sultan approved and granted all of these requests. The other scholars agreed with Shehu Uthman Danfodio. They joined in with him to voice their approval. Word began to spread and Uthman Danfodio's popularity with the common people continued to grow and grew tremendously after this. These requests from Uthman Danfodio also provided special privileges for his followers because most of his followers were the people wearing turbans and hijabs. So the Muslims who expressed their religious identity by wearing turbans and hijabs, it began to separate them from the other people. So his following began to have a sort of separation from the main population. Before long, Uthman Danfodio and his followers, his jama'ah, were operating sort of like a state within a state. He had a good relationship with the sultan, and this allowed him to exercise a significant amount of independence with his community. Before long, however, his jama'ah, his community, began to call for more independence, and they began to call for separation from the state. And in, in response to these requests from his jama'ah, Uthman Danfolio began encouraging his followers to carry weapons. And this leads to the beginning of the jihad. While this current sultan was agreeable and friendly with Uthman Danfodio, 
some of the sultans who followed him were not the same. This independence that Uthman Danfodio and his following were able to have in Gobir, it caused many of the later sultans to grow suspicious of him. One sultan in particular who was not comfortable with this independence was Sarkin Gobir Nafata. Nafata began passing laws. Sultan Nafata began passing laws to limit Uthman Danfodio's influence and his reach. He began by prohibiting anyone else besides the Shahu, besides Shahu Uthman Danfodio, from preaching and teaching Islam. This limited the Sheikh because now his students could not spread his message. The Shahu could not be all places at once. He would, of course, have sent his students to go and spread his message elsewhere. But now with this new law, he was the only one who could do it. Sultan Nafata also ordered, and this is where it gets really strange. Sultan Nafata ordered that anyone, he ordered that anyone who was not born Muslim, they had to renounce Islam and go back to their previous faith. And finally, Sultan Nafata prohibited anyone from wearing the turbans and the hijabs. Obviously, these crazy rules riled up and angered Uthman Danfodio and his Jama'ah. It got so bad that one of his students, a man named Abdus Salam, led a group of followers out of Gobir in order to escape these laws. They settled in a nearby town called Gambana and tried to practice their and tried to practice Islam and do their teachings on their own away from the Sultan and his crazy rules. Eventually, Sultan Nafata died and his son Yunfa took over. Sarkin Gobir Yunfa, who was the new Sultan of Gobir, he did not like this expatriate society living just outside of his reach. So he ordered Abdul Salam and his followers to return to Gobir, and of course, Abdul Salam refused to do so. So Sultan Yunfa, he sent some troops to the town to capture and defeat and fight Abdul Salam. The Sultan's troops attacked and killed many of Abdul Salam's followers, and the others were enslaved. So the army brings back these captured Muslim students and Muslim followers of Sheikh Uthman, Uthman Danfodio, brings them back to the capital, marching them through the streets victoriously in plain sight of Uthman Danfodio and his followers, and that's just, that just does it for them. Uthman Danfodio's followers, they plan an ambush, they attack the army, defeat the army, scatter the army, and free the Muslims who had been enslaved by the Sultan's troops. Sultan Yunfa then orders Uthman Danfodio to leave the region, to leave Gobir and go elsewhere. Uthman Danfodio, he agrees to leave, but he said he was going to take everyone who wanted to go with him. Sheikh Uthman Danfodio and his followers, they left Gobir, relocated to Gudu, about 60 miles north of Gobir, and this became known as the famous Hijra of Uthman Danfodio, and it marked the beginning of his jihad. We will discuss that more in the next episode. In the next episode, inshallah, we will continue discussing the rise of the Sokoto Caliphate. But until then, Assalamu alaikum 
wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.